time to turn on the computer. Welcome to Listen Presents On Air, a new series of podcasts recorded and produced by myself, Hannah Narali, for Listen Gallery. For this first episode, I invited three artists, Richard Deacon, Richard Wentworth and Ryan Gander, to engage with the theme of On Time. I decided to invite these artists as time, narrative, language, context and history are all themes within their work. What does it mean to think about time, or more specifically on time? It's after all something that we deal with every day. A cursory internet search offered up the following definitions. It's perpetuity without spatial parameters. It's a series of measurements used to quantify the events that happen within our lives. We use time to quantify changes in our material reality and conscious experience. If you are on time, you are not late. Obviously, the theme of on time is immense, and people have dedicated lifetimes to its writing and investigation. During my cursory internet search, the following names amongst the many also came up. Virginia Woolf, Omri Bergson, Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt. But is it something that is philosophical? Is it logistical or is it existential? Or is it, in fact, a combination of all of these things and more? The responses accumulated for this episode anecdotally explore time through thoughts on contemporaneity, the nature of material, the Anthropocene, existentialism, cats, babies, Borgs and Star Trek, making art, language and, of course, time itself. And I should add, this episode is not an endeavour to reach any finite conclusion, rather to offer up some rumination on the subject. I very, very much enjoyed the time I spent with Richard, Ryan and Richard and listening to them speak, and in this instance, all recordings have taken place within their studios. Having been at the helm of British sculpture since the 1980s, Richard Deacon's work is concerned with pushing the limits of materials. Working with a variety such as wood, stainless steel, corrugated iron, marble, clay, foam and leather, he manipulates stresses and moulds them into existence. His abstract sculptures often reveal the process of their own making as inherent fabrication markings are left exposed. Language and wordplay are also an important element, with titles becoming integral to our engagement with his work. They operate to set up associations between the material entity, the form, the space they occupy, and the viewer. I spoke with Richard in his studio on the 23rd of June, 2017. So, uh, I've just done a show in Antwerp called Sometime. So, the idea behind the show was that um, it was both a... covered a period of time that the work was made, uh, and it takes... Um, some time to make it, but also slightly darker than that. Some time is what we've got. Uh, and given that I'd just done a sh- show the year before called On the Other Side, it seemed to kind of uh, tie in with a certain sense of mortality in the way that I was thinking about things. Uh, time was a... Uh, I, thought t- I thought time was an issue when I was a... Uh, uh, a student, actually, when I started uh, at Foundation and more particularly at St. Martin's, uh, I thought time was the kind of missing component in the way that people talked about sculpture or in the ways that uh, um, both the amount of time that uh, it took to make something and the uh, um, permanence in the, uh, in the object itself, that time was somehow a... Um, a component both on a kind of practical level, on a manufacturing level, uh, and time was what the uh, time was what sculpture had. 
but it wasn't uh, it wasn't ephemeral. It had it had some sort of uh, attachment to time, and uh, then the solution when I was a, a student was to go down a a route which uh, tried to make um, looked at kind of narrative and performance and other things to make time a uh, a more significant part of the way you experience work. That time was uh, so narrative or description were ways of um, passing time along to the viewer or to mm -hmm. the ex person who's experiencing the work. Uh, and writing was particularly in relationship to performance works. Uh, there was a kind of analogue between the business of uh, uh, reading, uh, of watching performance, experiencing performance work, experiencing durational work uh, and of reading uh, um, descriptions. Whereas photography in its uh, seeming ability to freeze time seemed to be against uh, the, uh, seemed, to be, seemed to be against that. So there were, uh, and yet at the same time, photography was uh, becoming an increasing, increasing part of photographic, of uh, sculptural practice. Um, and photography has, you know, particularly analog photography has this kind of very strong relationship to uh, time, both in the, the registering of a moment and in the way in which the image is revealed mm -hmm. through a, um, holistically rather than linearly. Um, and then, uh, so the time didn't disappear uh, from uh, the way that I was working, but I began to think that the, uh, here's the police car. Uh, time, uh, time's up, yeah. <laughs> uh, I began to think that time was, um, that the, the kind of vehicle that I was constructing had become a bit over elaborate, you know, it was kind of really theoretical mm -hmm. with that and, and was thin on, thin on experience. Um, and on the other side, I also started to find the things that I was making in uh, um, kind of performative situations, things that I uh, thought could endure, which could, you know, which I could walk away from and they still have meaning. Um, so time then started to become, uh, time in the work started to become more to do with somehow registering the process as being a way of uh, registering time within the uh, within the work itself, and there being something like permanence or at least duration uh, or long duration in the in the thing that was produced that would kind of that could survive being shut up on its own for uh, twenty five years and come out again and still be still have meaning. Um, and then, as you go along, the the and you start to do shows where there are groups of works, you also understand that um, time marks, is a, time is a way of grouping things, or, or of not grouping things I mean, it's e uh, equally well. I made a show in uh, um, Strasbourg in 2010. Uh, it was one very big room and it was a challenging installation because the earliest work was from 1976 and the latest work was from 2010 and putting them all in the same room uh, implied that they 
they could talk to each other meaningfully, which they could, uh, but it also might have suggested that I hadn't gone anywhere, you know, that the, which is, um, which I don't think is true, um, because in fact what happens is that uh, the old inflects the new and the new inflects the old. Uh, and uh, so it's a continually changing uh, uh, scenario. Then it slightly puzzles me as to why the two most, the two recent shows, uh, the two of the recent shows I've done have had a much stronger relationship to time in the titles of the show and also in the titles of the works that mm -hmm. I've done. So uh, uh, I, I'll get to that again. The, uh, <laughs> um, and it probably started actually with uh, uh, my finishing a work, a, a small work, which, um, which I called Small Time. Um, uh, and then I made another work which I called Big Time. And so then time also became a uh, um, uh, a linguistic thing that was kind of in, uh, that occur that it's uh, um, not only experienced but is something that occurs in uh, um, uh, in the ways we talk about the world. Uh, uh, and so some time um, is in line with kind of small time, big time, um, some time, uh, and you could go on. You know, lots of other adjectives or ways in which you can attach time to a, um, uh, to a situation. Uh, whether there's any post-superannuation uh, uh, anxiety um, in that, I don't know. Um, or whether it's just uh, um, my turning to another area of, another area of language which, uh, uh, which has kind of interesting depth so that uh, previously um, uh, and it can start from things quite small so that uh, I made a work out of a metal called Rymex which is a kind of textured steel sheet uh, and searching for a title uh, we called it uh, let's call it Rymex it was, uh, it was kind of off the top of my head and then we made another one that went up to the store with Andrews and in conversation with him, uh, I'd said something like, let's call it something else rather than just as a way to say, don't call it what you did before. But then it got labeled, let's call it something else. <laughs> uh, and I thought that was actually yeah. a really good title. Yeah. And so something else uh, then, then became a kind of whole, um, it could have been something else, something else matters, you know. So it, it, something else became a kind of phrase that actually was quite interesting once you detached it from that very banal, uh, jokey mm. kind of uh, uh, occurrence, and uh, and I'm sure small time kind of started a bit like that. You know, it was a kind of uh, uh, it was a small work that actually took quite a long time to make. Uh, it would it had been uh, uh, made partially made in the uh, uh, in the fabrication workshop and then never finished uh, because it was used as a model for uh, to find out how a joint worked, uh, and then I. Uh, I said, well, you know, we should actually finish this uh, and it would be a good job for uh, an apprentice to kind of learn this, bits on it that would be learned. So, uh, um, uh, so that's how the title came out. And this is just before, or when we're talking about the, uh, the show in Vintertour and then uh, um, the notion of On the Other Side came up as a title. And 
obviously time and on the other side have some, you know, that mortality mm-hmm. thing that's um, involved. Though also on the other side is just something that is uh, a feature of the work that I do. You know, there are two sides to things, inside and outside. So, um, the time obviously runs out at some point. Um, and uh, so even if you're on time, uh, then you can be out of time. Uh, and that would be the way that I'd probably finish it. Richard Wentworth has played a leading role in new British sculpture since the end of the 1970s. His work considers the transformation and displacement of objects and how context has an inference on meaning. Through the manipulation and reordering of found objects and subversion of their original function, Richard's work engenders us to see the world in a new light. I spoke to Richard in his studio on the 11th of July 2017. Well, um, I think the funny thing about any, any question anyway is that a, a question almost by definition takes you by surprise. So somebody says time to me um, because I'm here as we say we, I'm here and uh, we also say and it's now which is already hilarious because it's the past um, I have a really uh, strong sense of my uh, my fallibilities and my um, my physical, the physical fact of me in time and place, and um, it 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 happens that um, uh, last year, after a very long time and so uh, not particularly unexpected, um, my mum died, and that means that my wife and I now have no parents. And someone said to us the other day, oh, you don't have parents anymore. Um, you're not children. Mm. And that, which I thought was just a brilliant, it was a kind of, it was um, harsh, but it was also a kind of rather brilliant tease about um, how we, how humans position themselves in the world. And I realised that for a very long time, I have thought about myself in historical space um, probably because I'm moderately curious about who I am why I'm like I am um, where certain appetites come from um, where my fallibilities come from and one of my chief fallibilities is not being on time and um, doing something with time and space which is abusive so I will um, <laughs> that's, that's Felix's door <laughs> actually meaning earlier to just undo the hinge that um, in question it's comforting because I think of it as because they grew up in here so I think of it as being his ghost um, 
Um, yeah, so I, th- I, what I suppose I, I have a horrible feeling I might have a reputation for being not good with time, uh, which I'm, I don't, you know, we're all always nervous about other pers- the, the undeclared or less than declared perceptions of ourselves. Um, but somewhere in that self-consciousness about being a bit funny with time is something maybe to do with that lovely French expression, esprit d'escalier, which is that you can do things on the staircase. You can say something unacceptable to somebody else on a staircase, or you will have a thought on a staircase, or there are circumstances in which as you move through time and space, you, I think you learn almost like the comedy of where your best ideas come from not that I actually think I have any ideas I think we should not get too excited about ideas I don't really subscribe to the idea of of art art being an illustration of an idea Um, I I think I'm very nervous somebody said to me something the other day about Bruce Nauman's ideas and I got a bit uppity and I said I think the whole point of Bruce Bruce Nauman is he doesn't have ideas he makes Bruce Nauman mm. um, but that doesn't mean he's not nourished or fed and you know our job as artists is to work out how to nourish and feed ourselves so while you're doing that you start to notice that you that there are probably quite deep pattern organizational patterns that are productive others not um, and I know that I can sort of spool around an action uh, for really quite a long time without being any near the activity or the materials or the stuff. I, it's a kind of reverie. And then very often I will have to do it in compressed time and I'll get it right. And I'll get it much more right that way than if I was more of a, a tidy proceduralist. Um, and I think going back to this thing about who does one think one is um, I have you know I've got the best part of seven decades to refer to and that means I can see the um, psychosexual political global mush in which all of that took place. And for the greater part of it, I didn't know that. You're a baby. You don't know that, um, you don't know that apartheid is being invented and China is being invented and um, Israel is being invented and the two Germanies are being invented. Just a baby. Mm. Now it seems the, the period when I'm, being born seems what you know all of that stuff is and I of course I know know that because I'm kind of quite nosy about history and geopolitics and and what have you so there's that then there's a sort of funny thing that's happened to me which is I become incredibly interested in who might one have been in a different period so the period that I can get hold of is never much more than double my own age. So I can go backwards from my birth 
And I, as if I went backwards by my lifetime, I would be um, a baby with uh, Malevich and Louis Chevrolet. Mm. Um, I'm sure there were other babies, but there's two people <laughs> that we've heard of. And um, that seems kind of incredible that they're, they're just lifetimes. And of course, you know, the wonderful Loudon Wainwright, who's now older than his dad, he actually sings about the comedy of going past your parents' um, biological age and the way that that puts you into a funny, um, a funny dynamic. And I, I, I'm aware, talking to a man and a woman, that what I might be saying might be very male because I think that there are... Um, that women are perhaps offered other projections, other predicaments, but that there is something slightly weird about being a man and you don't get any choice, or maybe we're not getting choice, but I didn't have any. Um, so I'm aware of myself inhabiting a quite a big lump of extremely... Um, dynamic um, historical post-war time in which so little has been asked of me. No one's dropped a bomb on me. Um, I haven't had to carry arms. Um, pretty shaming and, and a just a fluke of time. Um, not something you select. Um, not something I'm aware of having manipulated, but a very odd, uh, and it's funny because I just made a gesture with my hands as if I was trying to sort of get hold of this stuff, which is, um, you know, the strange Anglo. you know, I'm Anglophone and I speak some other languages, but I'm Anglophone and I haven't much choice but to understand the world from that point of view. So, I mean, even as I'm saying this, I'm, I'm also thinking of, you know, my friend, the quantum physicist, and I'm thinking of proper time, you know, fuck off big time. Um, and I know I'm not even an ant, you know, I'm sort of a piece of blown dust on the the face of the universe but the strange thing I think about being invited to say something about it is that you're you are thrown back into your own consciousness and um, certainly one of the things that I become unbelievably aware of is how incredible humans are and and the sort of window into how incredible they are is how incredible babies are so a sort of three month old a two month old a four month old is you know I've got a cat at home and the cat is frankly pretty stupid compared <laughs> with how babies behave so you in, in, a, in a baby um you know, which I haven't been for 70 years, you you witness this uh, will to, to take possession 
of experience and time and internalize and externalize and and I don't want to denigrate the cat but the cat doesn't you know the cat has never told me an idea you know the cat has never said do you know what happens if you go along the rooftops and you get to number 48 you know there's no it's got all sorts of skills that I'll never develop but it doesn't offer that whereas the the baby looks like it's ready to do that and it is you know it's got to gather up some kit called speech and um, understand how we relate to each other but that's what they do and um, well you can hear this is an older person who you have to be I think you have to be quite um, if not mature you just have to be quite grown up to see that very very clearly and see why it's so uh, gorgeous and um, and full of meaning but you don't know what the meaning is um, <clears throat> the zeitgeist of our time is that is the unpronounceable Anthropocene it's the incredible um, collective possession of the planet and is completely irresponsible because nobody has any real sense of what that means nobody had a plan there's no bad person you can point to and say they led us into this it's a it's a in a way it's the direct phenomenon of the baby over a very long period of time flexing its muscles and being what it is so I think that I think humans are incredibly optimistic I think it's it that the act of speaking to another human is is it's moral and optimistic it's it's um, incredibly positive but I think that you know we're standing on a on a rippling field of cling wrap which is absolutely terrifying and everybody knows it and um, I mean to make a very specific time the other kind of time reference there's a beautiful interview of with Eric Hobsbawm very shortly before he died where he he says it had never occurred to him that um, sectarian forces would reappear on the planet and be so strenuous. This is, might be nearly 10 years ago I heard this interview. And then they say to him, what do you think is going to happen? Something like that. And he says, well, you might be all right as long as there isn't a natural disaster what's that effect within ryan gander's works there is an innate inquiry into investigation hypotheticals association and a questioning of what it means to exist in the world Often explored through the use of objects as agents of language and storytelling, Ryan's works engage the viewer in an almost collaborative capacity in that you are invited to participate within the narrative and construction of meaning. I spoke to Ryan in his studio on the 20th of July, 2017. Uh, how old are you? 31. Yes, uh, you've not had a midlife crisis yet. Because uh, I'm 41. And... Um, 
I'm becoming impatient with my lost years somehow, which is what they call a midlife crisis, I think. So that has quite an effect on making work. There's this thing like the anxiety of influence that I feel like I'm getting, which is where you think, what influence have I left in the world? This is what all artists thrive off, isn't it? It's like the ego in every artist is, well, a lot of artists are driven by fame and money, I guess. But most artists, the good ones, I think they're driven by this anxiety of influence, leaving a mark or a trace, which is kind of uh, really natural. It's not like a bad, sordid thing. It's completely normal, um, I'd say. It's uh, about writing the history of art, making an original contribution to knowledge, um, progression of visual language, human language, semiotics, all those things that, so for me, the older I get, this drive gets stronger, but I don't feel like I do more. I feel like I do less. So that's something that, is this is like a, uh, going to my counsellor. Is <laughs> it really helping get it all out and start crying at the end and say, it's all my fault. Um, no, but it is something I'm working through in a weird way because... I seem to make less and less work, but that's because when I was younger, I used to make a work every day. And now the world's different uh, and I'm different. I've got other commitments and other jobs and things like that. So uh, so when I think of the, the notion of time, uh, on time or in time, I feel like every time, there's a great quote in, a, in Kurt Vonnegut, the Slaughterhouse-Five book where he says that every time it, the second hand ticks, it feels like a year goes by, and then it ticks again another year goes by, and because he's waiting. Um, and I feel a bit like that. The, the, the velocity of time increases the older that you get, and it's hard to position yourself in the world in time, because there's all this other stuff that's behind you, not things like memories and histories of your life, but all these kids that make art. And they make art and you see the art they make and you think, yeah, I thought about that as well when I was 20. So there's all this stuff that's catching up with you, chasing you. It's like being, it's like fight or flight, kind of. You're being chased by uh, your own silhouette somehow, which is funny. Uh, <laughs> like the Borg in Star Trek where they all have one mind and one thinks they're like uh, I've got to kill the Klingons and then they all think we've got to kill, kill the Klingons and yeah. they just do it like ants like bee colonies ant colonies beehives um, yeah to, I, I have this conversation with a really good friend he's a writer and we often come to this same conclusion that it really feels like everyone's making exactly the same work. And I know you get that historically. That's what, you know, in contemporary art, nothing has ever existed in isolation. Liam Gillick said that, and I'm just quoting him. Um, but it's true, you know, that's why there was Impressionism and Art Povera and all these other schools and groupings, because people are interested in art, so they hang out with other artists, and they're interested in what each other are doing, and that ends up to be 
uh, collective consciousness or concerted effort towards a goal which is determined by history and fashion. And But at the moment, it, I really, in with young artists, what I see, I'm really disappointed in. Um, and I have quite a bit to compare this to, so it's, I don't think I'm speaking unfairly, but there's just a massive um, interest in aesthetics and no, uh, yeah, retinal art, art for the eyes, not cognitive art, not art for the brain. It's like, art, it looks wicked. It's like got colour gradient and sparkly leggings and like paint splattered and like people jumping up and down screaming and silver umbrellas and logos like emojis in it. I think it's related to... You know, dead obvious things like one of the one of the um, goals in making work for me, or one of the objectives, is to avoid the obvious. You know, and all those characteristics that are just listed that are visual characteristics, you see them in graphic design, and you see mm. them in advertising you see them on the high street in h&m and you see them like the whole trend for um, palm trees watermelons pineapples this exists in yeah day-to-day reality of lives and historically i think art's been a precursor to culture and it's dictated where culture goes but at the moment it feels like cultures in in the you know young art young art uh it feels like culture is climbed over the back of what was meant to be cutting edge and is actually leading. And I suppose it's got a lot to do with the fact that when I was an art student, we'd listen, this sounds so like an old bloke speaking, but we'd listen to a vinyl <laughs> record and read the foot in the, the, the record sleeve, every word on it, and you listen to it in an order. It's just that, and it's just to do with the speed of life and that people are more um, in tune with the self rather than the collective. And the uh, things are faster; they're not thought about for a long time. So things have to be recognisable. They have to flash and bleep and shout and jump and pop and whiz and sing songs. Singing songs is all right, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So I get really excited when uh, I think it's London as well and New York mm. actually, because yep. if you go to show in Ghent it's not quite like that mm. or you go to one in Glasgow it's not well it is in Glasgow Huddersfield <laughs> there's nothing shiny at all <laughs> yeah don't know find it find um, everything seems very obvious mainstream uh like, I thought we thought a good rule for making a decent artwork was to defy expectation. You know, with the best shows that I've seen are the ones where I like the artist and I know a bit about them. And I go to the show and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't expect that. That's amazing that they've made that cognitive leap, that they've made some sort of super loop of reasoning that you would never have got to. But I feel like the more I see 
like degree shows or whatever, or, or you know, young galleries. It's like, well, that's exactly what I thought would be here. Yeah. It goes in waves, doesn't it? Sounds so miserable. I'm, I'm always astonished how art changes over time when the world moves around a work. Um, so works that you think about Memphis. So Memphis was Ace when it was made, furniture, the patronage, if you think about the patronage. Um, Ace when it was made, that was horrible. And now it's like cool again. There's a weird kind of irony to it. And it's the way that the, move, the world moves around it rather than its meaning change. And that's fascinating because what I love about that, you get a lot of artists who are interested in a strict reading of their work and they don't want it shown in a different context or they don't want it taken out of context because they think that it compromises the work. But when things move around art, the art changes and that teaches the person that made it something that they didn't expect. And I think that's ace. That's like, if I can learn something that I didn't think I'd learn, that's like, the whole definition of art is to be, like, feel like you're always at university, isn't it? Lifelong learning. To, you know, it's, I mean, that's why it's the best job in the world because in a way you're an eternal student but one that does go to the library, not just to the student union. <laughs> um, yeah, so I always think that's really interesting. Um, and the more you go through time and the more works that you make, the more work, the more iterations of the same work exist because the context shifts around it. So I like that works grow. It's similar to this idea that there's three, you can sort of, I can sort of see three ways of making art. In the beginning, when I started making art, I'd make artworks and I'd just try really hard to make a good artwork. I just want to make a really good work, killer work. And then you get a bit more versed and a bit more eloquent with the languages. And making a good work isn't as taxing as it used to be. You can make a good work in less time. And then... You make a few good works, then you made 10, then you made 100, then you made 1,000, 2,000. And then you're, you have a palette of 2,000 works. And then you realise that there's this whole other job that you never thought that you would have, which is to be a curator of the self, where you can make new meanings, which are, we call exhibitions, but are multiple works that you've made that mean different things. And by putting them together, they become different things, just like the world changes around a work. The works that are around, surround a work, change a work as well. And that was kind of an amazing revelation, that I had this other job that I had to learn how to do, make exhibitions. Like, you know, ones that pull on all the works you've made, not like an exhibition in new works, which is a slightly different thing. And then I guess, I've not got to this bit yet, but I can also, from that tangent, see this trajectory where in the future, there's this other job which is controlling your practice, which is amazing. If you think of like artists whose practice has meandered 
and changed and had peaks and troughs and swerves and kinks and and then you think of an artist's practice as this journey that you control. That's interesting. Um, but I'm just thinking about that now, what that means. You know, when artists go through their blue period or artists are celebrated, like David Lamellis was massively celebrated and then disappeared for ages and then now he's massively celebrated again. Or even Mark Leckie didn't make art for like 10 years, you know. These kind of... Yeah, this kind of uh, path that you take is also a masterpiece or a masterwork, a bigger creative act. Can I tell you one great analogy? It's not mine, it's friend Michael Shorey on the chat. He's a Swiss guy I went to college with. And we were one night drunk in a, a Turkish-Italian. There's loads of Turkish-Italians in Amsterdam. Restaurants, not people. Um, there probably are a lot of Turkish Italians in Amsterdam. Anyway, uh, I always used to go for the lasagna because I knew it'd be cooked through. Pizzas were always a bit doughy. And we'd eat there every night and we were talking about um, this whole idea of in time or on time and the trajectory of an artist's life uh, and the way that they make works. And he came up with this ace analogy where he said something like, you might need to get permission to play this because he might be annoyed that I've told you. He said, um, the, the best way to have an um, artistic trajectory through your life is to be like Cowell. So you imagine the analogy of a fire and an artist's uh, creative career. And he said, there's those artists who are like paper or kindling and they light and they're really bright and they burn and everyone goes, oh my God, it's so bright. It's like glaring me. And then uh, it goes out straight away. And then there's those others that's like sticks and they burn. And it's like, oh God, it's quite warm that. And look at the shadows on the wall. It's like pretty, pretty good fire. And then it goes out, but it lasts longer. And then there's logs and then there's coal. And coal, you never really get a flame off coal but it burns like super heat for a massive amount of time. And like, I, th I knew what he was saying, but I saw it from the perspective of, before I started making art, I wanted to make art because I didn't want to do the other thing that I knew I'd have to do, which was have an awful job somewhere, like a terribly boring job in Chester. Um, so in a way it was kind of just not doing that is ace. That's like <laughs> objective one. Do something where you don't have to have the terrible job that you're going to have. Uh, and then as time went on, you know, I had a few exhibitions. I thought, that's good. It'll be up soon. You know, that'll be it. I'll have to go back to Chester, live with my mum and dad for a bit, get a job, get promoted, save up some money, move into a flat. Uh, and then I had another show and then I won a prize and another show. And I was like, oh, this is going pretty well. I'm really enjoying it. Hope it doesn't stop. Yeah, I hope I can do it for another year. And it's like... It's such a gift to be an artist. It sounds completely cheesy, but it is a total gift to be an artist because essentially you can do what you want every single day. You can reinvent what your life is. That's like the privilege of that is always like, it's mad that it totally amazes me. So that's why I have a strong aversion to artists without work ethic. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
find out more about Listen Presents and to hear about upcoming episodes of On Air, do sign up to the gallery's newsletter on our website, which is www.listengallery.com. Leon Polk-Smith's first solo exhibition with the gallery opened on the 8th of September at our 24th Street location at Listen Gallery New York. Concurrently to this, an exhibition of Stanley Whitney works on paper is also taking place at our 10th Avenue space. Both shows run through to the 21st of October. Exhibitions by Laura Calzadia and Daniel Boren open at Listen Gallery London on the 22nd of September and run through to the 11th of November. Listen Presents On Air is recorded and edited by Henry Law and the title music is written and recorded by Victor M. Jakeman. Many thanks to Richard Deakin, Richard Wentworth, Ryan Gander, Matt O'Dell, Alison Thorpe, Zoe Ansbach, Chris Hammond, Jamie Partridge and Linton Talbot. See you next time for Listen Presents On Air. Close down the browser. Restart the computer. And return online. Online.